Hello, beloveds, and welcome to Christian Emotional Recovery, a podcast for those who are survivors of childhood trauma, emotional neglect, and narcissistic abuse. This podcast is hosted by Rachel Leroy, a college professor and trauma survivor. Many of us spend years trying to heal and don't get anywhere. We don't always target the trauma itself, which is so often what keeps us stuck. This podcast is where faith meets science. Rachel is an emotional healing expert with 20 years of experience applying healing modalities that helped her start making progress after nothing else worked. She'll show you how to do the same. Each week, we'll cover a topic that will show you how to heal trauma for good. Please check out our website and show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com and join the Facebook community, Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Christian Emotional Recovery. I'm your host, Rachel Leroy, and we are starting a series on narcissistic abuse. This episode is Season 2, Part 6. Season 2, Part 6. And it is part of a larger series called Series on Narcissistic Abuse. It's part of a larger series called Series on Narcissistic Abuse. And this part is called What You Need to Know About Narcissistic Abuse. What You Need to Know About par- Narcissistic Abuse. What You Need to Know About Narcissistic Abuse. And this is part one. Part two will continue with What You Need to Know About Narcissistic Abuse. And it will be Season 2, Episode 7. So Season 2, Episode 7 will be the second part of What You Need to Know About Narcissistic Abuse. What You Need to Know About Narcissistic Abuse. And this first episode in the series actually just gives you a good rundown of narcissistic abuse itself, what a narcissist is, how narcissists operate, ways that it impacts people who are victims and survivors of that abuse, and ways you can tell someone has high narcissistic traits or NPD, also known as narcissistic personality disorder. So we'll be talking about this in a little detail and going through some of the examples of those. So um, let's go ahead and get started here. First, if you haven't already, go to the YouTube channel Christian Emotional Recovery, Christian Emotional Recovery, and hit subscribe. Hit subscribe. I try to put out a new video about every two weeks and as I'm able. And I apologize for the lateness of this episode, but I also put out the podcast episodes as I'm able. And I think this is the first time I've actually been late on it, but I'm dealing with some health issues. So please continue to pray for me and thank you for your patience. The next parts of the series will be how to deal with a narcissist, the impact of narcissistic abuse on relationships with others, and the impact of narcissistic abuse on our relationship with God. So this is the first part of a four-episode series on the narcissistic abuse series. And it just educates you about narcissistic abuse, how to protect yourself, and how it impacts different areas of our lives, and what to do to get your life back if you've been a survivor or a victim of narcissistic abuse. So let's go ahead and jump in and get started. Also, check out the Facebook group, which is Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. And also check out the website, which is ChristianEmotionalRecovery.com. So this episode is broken down into a few sections. First, what is narcissistic abuse and why does it happen? Then we'll go into details. And this episode is research heavy because I'm trying to use reputable resources to back up what I'm saying. So you know I'm not just making this up. And if you're a survivor of this, a lot of this stuff will ring bells anyway. And you'll be like, yep, yep, 
Yep, that's me. Yep, yep. So you'll be able to relate to it and understand it if you have had a relationship with a narcissist and dealt with that kind of behavior, which most of us at some point in our lives have. But some people have been impacted by it since they were children, by parents, by siblings, by romantic relationships, by friendships, by neighbors, by extended family, teachers, and bosses, and so on. And we'll talk about some of those different relationships as well. What are the general impacts of narcissistic abuse on the survivor? Then we'll talk about the impact of those with narcissistic parents and caretakers. And we'll break some of these down a little more. Impact of specific types of relationships with narcissists. And that's what I was just talking about. Healing, education, and getting your life back. So let's go ahead and jump in and get started. First, most of you, if you're on the channel, probably have an idea of what narcissistic abuse is and maybe a little bit of an idea of why it happens. But I'm going to assume that you know just a little bit about it. So if you know something about it, bear with me. This could also be a refresher. I'm not one that likes to just sit there and talk about narcissistic abuse all day. It's a very popular topic these days. And in some um, channels. I've seen that's all they talk about. And I like to talk about the healing. I like to talk about moving past the problems and the trauma that has been caused by that to the healing as well. But in this episode, I am going to talk more about the impacts so you can be educated, so you can protect yourself, and so you can know what narcissistic abuse is, how narcissists operate, and what you can do to get your life back. So, first of all, there is narcissistic behavior, and then there's NPD, which is narcissistic personality disorder. Keep in mind that somebody can just be a jerk, or they can act like a jerk. We've all acted like a jerk at some point, and not necessarily be a narcissist. And also keep in mind that, like most things, there is a spectrum. There are high-functioning narcissists that don't cause a lot of conflict, you can negotiate with them. You might even be able to have a good relationship with some um, high-functioning, low-grade narcissist. And then there's the worst of the worst where you get into sociopaths and psychopaths where they will literally torture people for fun. And it's hard to believe that there are human beings like that, but there are. So if you haven't been around people like that, you're very, very blessed. But if you're listening to this podcast, I'm willing to bet that you've been there. But the people that are on the more extreme end of the spectrum, bear with me, my cat is moving around so you might hear her rattling. The more extreme end of the spectrum would definitely be people with narcissistic personality disorder. So just because somebody has high narcissistic traits doesn't necessarily mean that they have narcissistic personality disorder. And um, so in the past, this was probably underdiagnosed. I'm willing to bet now, even though I'm not a psychologist, that it might be overdiagnosed now. So it's just a matter of finding that balance, I think. But either way, narcissistic traits also are not all bad. There are advantages to having people in society that have narcissistic traits, and we all have some, and we actually all need some to survive and to thrive. So people like the people that are billionaires and make money and then maybe they're philanthropists and they give billions of dollars away. I believe that in order to make that kind of money, you almost need high narcissistic traits. And a lot of natural born leaders have nar more narcissistic traits. I am willing to bet that Winston Churchill and Theodore Roosevelt and people like that who were great leaders, albeit they were flawed leaders, but they were great leaders that we needed to get us through crises in our country and in our world. They probably had high narcissistic traits, but they also were high functioning narcissists. So they could negotiate, talk to people, you could reason with them and so forth and so on. But it was those high narcissistic traits that allowed them to have that wherewithal, to be the leader, to have that backbone to be able to stand up to tyranny and not be afraid of it and not back down. So sometimes, like I said, that can be a good thing. But let's go ahead and look into what is narcissistic abuse? What is narcissistic abuse? So I've got a source here from Very Well Mind, and the title is Effects of Narcissistic Abuse by Arlen Kunkik. And the 
the article talks about narcissistic abuse. And narcissistic abuse, it says, is a type of emotional abuse where the abuser only cares about themselves and may use words and actions to manipulate their partner's behavior and emotional state. They're just talking about partners, but it could be anybody in any relationship or interaction, but especially close ones. Effects of narcissistic abuse can vary depending on how long one can endure these types of relationships. So that is a basic definition of narcissistic abuse, and that's what it is. And we'll go more into detail about the impacts and how that functions, or I should say doesn't function. So why does narcissistic abuse happen is the next question. Why does it happen? And what is makes a narcissist and what is their wiring? That is a question that a lot of professionals are still scratching their heads about. They have done brain scans. And for most narcissists, especially people that are full-blown narcissists, it is literally in their wiring that they're incapable of self-reflection if they're an extreme narcissist. And it's literally in their wiring that they're incapable of empathy. And their brain centers that where they should be able to do those things are non-functioning. They don't function like they should. So there's definitely an argument and a debate about whether or not narcissists can help that they're narcissists and whether or not they're aware that they're narcissists. Both of those are very controversial topics. I'm not going to take a side. I personally think that they can help it. I personally think they can at least choose not to hurt people, even if they can't feel empathy. That's still a choice. And I also believe that with their wiring, can they change? I cannot undermine God's power and say that God can't change a narcissist. I can't do that. That's not my place. Only God can do that. Uh, but I will say that if that's the case, if they can't be changed in their neural network, only God can change them and only God can heal them if that's possible, if that's even possible. So whether or not they have free will, whether or not they're aware of their own narcissistic traits, a lot of experts are starting to say yes. Whether or not they can change that wiring, I'm not sure that they can. But do they have a choice in how they choose to treat people? I would say that, yes, they do. So even if they can't feel empathy, they can still learn behaviors that cause them to treat people with more respect. So looking at why does it happen? What makes a narcissist a narcissist? And there's an article called How a Child Becomes a Narcissist in Psychology Today. How a Child how Can a Child Become a Narcissist? This is Psychology Today, and this article is by Eleanor Greenberg. Eleanor Greenberg. And it talks about what types of parenting leads children to grow up with NPD. So this is specifically talking about people that are have full-blown narcissism and people that have in that way, would um, be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. One other thing to mention is that the irony about NPD is that very few narcissists think they need help, so very few narcissists are going to genuinely go see a psychologist or a counselor to get help with their narcissistic traits because they're incapable of seeing their own flaws and their own need for repentance and healing and help. And as a result, it's harder to know because there's not as much research on narcissists. There are narcissists who have volunteered and they are aware of what they are to do submit to research and brain scans. And sometimes it's just by chance that they do. And they've probably been dr drugged there by family and friends and stuff. And that's given them an idea too. But back to this article, how does a child become a narcissist? Again, very complicated. I'm not going to go into detail about this because I'm not a psychologist, but Sometimes it's because a child is, this article talks about how does a child get narcissistic personality disorder? And then it says, um, scenario one, narcissistic parental values. So maybe the own child's parent is a narcissist, models that behavior for them, and that's what they learn. And what I'm learning from experience is that it seems like kids that are narcissists tend to either be completely overindulged with no boundaries and no discipline, or they tend to be overindulged in the sense that they get everything that they want, they can do no wrong, their parents think that they're the bee's knees, and there's no boundaries set for them in that sense. The other one is that their parents are harsh, critical, 
disciplinarian to the point to a fault and to the point that they can't do anything right and that they get punished for every little thing. They can't even be a human being. They can't even be a kid. And so in that way, there are a couple of ways that narcissistic children are made. In that way, there are ways that narcissistic children are made. And some people argue that some of it is congenital and that children are born that way. And I think that there might be some children that are more predisposed to narcissism. And I do believe on occasion there's a child born and their brain may just be defective. I'm not saying they're defective as a human being, but their brain is defective. And we've seen those cases where a child was raised in a loving environment. There was nothing extremely wrong with the parents or the environment. And the child had a psychosis and they were violent and they were trying to kill people. And I think in those cases, the only explanation is that it was a brain issue or some kind of congenital thing or something weird that happened to their body at some point in their childhood that caused that to set off. And so, like I said, there are several possibilities, but narcissistic parental values is one scenario here. It says love is conditional. When you come in the first, come first in the race with science fair or star in the school um, show, you are showered with praise and attention. When you do not, you are a disappointment. That taken to the extreme can create a narcissistic child. Scenario two, um, going very, very quickly on these, the devaluing narcissistic parent, which would be the one that's domineering and it's, it says, in this scenario, this is a very domineering and devaluing parent who is always putting down the child. The parent is generally irritable, easily angered, and has unrealistic high expectations. Um, and so you end up with, in one case, the defeated child. Some of these children simply give up and accept defeat. In their teenage years, after decades of being told that they are worthless, they may spiral down into self-hating and shame-based depression. Then the rebellious child, and I would argue some of this is based on nature, whether a child fights back or a child goes within their shell. For example, I know cases where there's one sibling that has more that rebellious fight back nature and some children that tend to be quiet and go into their shell and be more people pleasers. So I think it just totally depends. And in cases where a child is raised by an alcoholic or an abuser or a narcissist, they can become codependent or narcissistic. And in some cases, neither. But usually they become one or the other. And we'll talk about um, codependency in just a little bit. The rebellious child, these children overtly reject their parents' message that they are, quote, losers. Instead, they spend their life trying to prove themselves, the world, and the devaluing parent that they are special and their parents are wrong. The angry child, the article says, these children grow up furious at the devaluing parent. Anyone who reminds them of their parent in any way becomes the target of their anger. Scenario three is the golden child. That's a key term in narcissistic abuse circles where people are trying to recover. The golden child is the one where the kid can do no wrong. Usually the child is one of more than one sibling, more than one child. And that impacts the other children because there's always that one child that's put on a pedestal, can do nothing wrong. The parents set no boundaries for that child. The parents don't discipline the child. And the parents' love is conditional based on the fact that their child is the bee's knees, God's gift, nothing's wrong with them. And they're usually closet narcissists who are uncomfortable in the spotlight. Instead, they brag about their extremely talented child. So um, that's another scenario that breeds a narcissistic child. The effects of conditional versus unconditional love. Everyone wants to be seen realistically and loved unconditionally. If children believe that their parents only value them because they are special, this can contribute to underlying insecurity. No one wins this time and no one better than every no one is better than everyone else in every way. So Probably more common now, narcissism is on the rise because people tend to do this with their children more. Because they had a hard childhood, they overcorrect, and they treat their child like the golden child. They won't even set boundaries with them. They want to be their child's best friend instead of a parent. And they take it to an extreme in some cases. And if the child also has a rebellious nature, guess what? There's a good chance, though not always, that you'll end up with a narcissistic child. 
The perception of flaws and shame have an impact on it. Stunted development of the real self is also another impact because you have to learn disappointment and discipline and be loved and have kindness shown to you, unconditional love and caring. Those are the things that develop character and that develop a genuine personality. And a a narcissist literally does not have an authentic persona. It doesn't exist. They don't have an identity of their own. And as a result, they reach out to these other things to try to have a false sense of that, and they end up hurting other people. So too much parental idealization, it says, may lead to an unbalanced view of the self. When this happens, the child then perceives any flaws as unacceptable and strives to be seen as perfect in a short hop, skip, and jump from the full-blown narcissism. Scenario four, the exhibitionist's admirer. Some children grow up in narcissistic households where there is an exhibitionist narcissist parent who rewards them with praise and attention as long as they admire and stay subservient to the parent. And that creates a narcissist in some ways. In some ways, it creates a covert or closet narcissist. The children learn that they will be given narcissistic supplies, attention, and praise for not openly competing with their narcissistic parent. So they pick up the qualities of their parent, but they keep them hidden instead of exhibitionist and out in the open because they don't want to make their parent mad. Because most narcissists, or a lot of them, pitch tantrums. And if it's your parent and you're a child, you're probably going to end up with some abusive behavior there. So um, those are some of the scenarios based on psychology today, based on Eleanor Greenberg, PhD, on how a child can become a narcissist. Like I said, is there a predisposition to being narcissist? I believe there is. Does that mean that it's going to get turned on if a child has the right upbringing? I don't believe it is. Are there some, a few children that may just be predisposed to it anyway and there's nothing you can do? Possibly. And um, I also believe that narcissists are made when they're in very less than ideal circumstances and especially when they're raised by narcissists or alcoholic or abusive parents. So that's a little bit about how a child can become a narcissist. The next part of the this, what is a narcissistic abuse and why does it happen? Narcissistic behaviors. So what are some behaviors of a typical narcissist? What are some of the behaviors of a typical narcissist? So I, there's an article here in eMedicine Health. eMedicine Health, what are the nine traits of a narcissist? What are the nine traits of a narcissist? Now, I'm not going to spend any significant time on this because I'm trying to go through a lot of different parts here because narcissism and narcissistic abuse has a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of different kinds of it too. But nine traits of a narcissist, and this was written by John C. Kuna, D-O-F-A-C-O-E-P. That's his degrees. And So the traits of a narcissist, I'm just going to go through them very quickly and then move on. But these are some things to look out for. And these are some of the traits of a narcissist in terms of how they behave, how they interact with the world, what they think of themselves and their makeup. Grandiosity, exaggerated sense of self-importance, feeling superior to others and that one deserves special treatment. Feeling entitled, in other words, if a child is raised as a golden child, of course they're going to grow up to think they're entitled as an adult. Feelings are often accompanied by fantasies of unlimited success, brilliance, power, beauty, or love. Number two, trait number two, excessive need for admiration. Excessive need for admiration must be the center of attention, often monopolize conversation, patience, Feel slighted, mistreated, depleted, or enraged when ignored. Patients, I guess, uh, people with narcissistic tendencies. Number three, the third trait is superficial and exploitative relationships. Superficial and exploitative relationships. So they're rarely capable of genuine love and genuine connection with another human being where they value that person's character, their their um, values, their personality, and their emotions. Relationships are based on surface attributes and not on unique qualities of others, and people are only valued only to the extent that they are viewed as beneficial. So they tend to use people. 
Lack of empathy is the fourth one. Lack of empathy. Severely limited or totally lacking ability to care about the emotional needs or experiences of others, even loved ones. Number five, identity disturbance. Identity disturbance. Sense of self is highly superficial, extremely rigid, and often fragile. Self-stability depends on maintaining the view that one is exceptional. Grandiose sense of self is easily threatened. And patients, I guess, that have this tendency retreat from or deny realities that challenge their grandiosity. Trait number six, difficulty with attachment and dependency. Relies on feedback from the environment. Relationships only exist to shore up positive self-image. Interactions are superficial. Intimacy is avoided. Number seven, chronic feelings of emptiness and boredom. When attention and praise are not available, patients or they feel empty, bored, depressed, or restless. Vulnerability to life transitions. Difficulty maintaining reality-based personal and professional goals over time. Compromises required by school jobs and relationships may feel unbearable. Young adults may have a failure to launch. And number nine, the last one, narcissistic personality disorder is often a significant risk factor for suicide and suicidal attempts. Now, the article goes on to talk about how do you diagnose narcissism, what is the treatment. Um, If you want to read that, you can read the rest of that article. But I just wanted you to get a sense of some of the basic and most common traits of a narcissist, a full-blown narcissist. And the difference between NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, and people that tend to have high narcissistic traits but are not full-blown NPD is also an important thing to distinguish. Because like I said, narcissism is a buzzword now, and the word gets thrown a lot in cases where there might be narcissistic traits, but somebody might not necessarily be a full-blown narcissist. So it's important to know the difference and to use balance here in terms of narcissistic personality disorder versus high narcissistic traits. And of course, there's going to be a gray area there as well. There's an article here that is called, I'm, I actually can't find the title of it. It's kind of strange, but it's a um, business insider article. It's a business insider article and it's by Melody Wilding. Melody Wilding, and it says, I'm a professor of human behavior, and I have some news for you about the, quote, narcissists in your life. And basically, what it talks about is that narcissistic, narcissism is, you know, a person who is excessively high in narcissism is said to have narcissistic personality disorder, disorder, which is a diagnosable mental illness, And um, narcissism is a personality trait that every person possesses to some degree. Like any characteristic, it exists on a spectrum. We all fall somewhere along the narcissistic continuum. So, in other words, somebody can be full-blown narcissist and have narcissistic personality disorder. Or somebody could have high narcissistic traits, but not necessarily be a narcissist. And they may even, in some cases, act like a full-blown narcissist because they're having a bad day. Not an excuse, but just saying. Or because they're weak in a certain area. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're a full-blown narcissist, though they could be. And it also says a person with narcissistic traits may be mildly self-centered at times, but NPD, on the other hand, is deeply ingrained, pervasive pattern. And so the difference between somebody with um, narcissistic traits, more narcissistic traits, and somebody with full-blown NPD is on a spectrum. And um, with the, it says, with the recent rise in narcissism and popularity of the topic, she says, I've noticed an increased interest in self-diagnosing the difficult people in our lives and careers. And that is true. And I think some of this is good, but it's also kind of gone too far. This is my opinion. Although narcissistic personality disorder, she says, is very uncommon between 0.5 and 1% of the general population, or one in every 100 people, it seems like everyone now claims to have a narcissist in their lives, especially at work where relationships can get the most heated. I am not an expert, but I would argue that it's slightly higher than that. I do think it's slightly higher than that, but I am not an expert, so I could be wrong. 
Chalking up what you dislike about another person to a mental disorder isn't ethical or fair. You may say things like, my boss is absolutely crazy or she's a raving narcissist, off the cuff out of anger, but pathologizing people in this way can be very dangerous. Label summing someone Labeling someone with a psychiatric disorder not only further stigmatizes who those who do live with mental health diagnosis, but it also trivializes how serious narcissistic personality disorder can be. And then it talks about starting spotting a nar- real narcissist. Um, and it gives you some suggestions on how to do that. And like I said, I've already named those traits. That doesn't mean all full-blown narcissists have all those traits, but if they check a bunch of those boxes and not just a few, then that's a red flag. That doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're a narcissist, but it is a red flag. And if they have a couple of those traits, then that doesn't necessarily mean they're a narcissist because like like was said, we all have narcissistic traits. And to some degree, we need some of them to survive. But we need to be able to make connections with other people, value other people's feelings, and have a sense of self-identity and mental health that helps us get through life at the same time. A well-adjusted person should not have all of those qualities. So uh, another part of what is narcissistic abuse and why does it happen? Um I wanted to go a little bit more into why do narcissists have trouble healing and seeing their own flaws? And like I said, some of it is there's parts in their brains that are not developed and or are not functioning properly. And one of those parts is the gray matter that is between the left and the right hemispheres of the brain. That's where empathy resides in the brain. That's that ability to connect with other people. That's that ability when you see somebody going through something like, say you see somebody fall flat on their butt um, in the middle of a crowd and you, you feel horrible for them. You feel embarrassment for them. That's empathy. Or if your friend calls and says that her dog died and that's been her best companion for 15 years and you feel absolutely horrible for her, that's empathy. Um, Seeing somebody on the street who is hungry and feeling sorrow that that person's in that situation is empathy. And empathy is what drives us to action to do things to help people or at least to treat people kindly or at the very least to do no harm. And that's, that's empathy. But narcissists, true narcissists have no capability of, of having empathy at all. So there was an article here called, Do Narcissists Know They Are Narcissists? And that was written by Scott Barry Kaufman. Do Narcissists Know They Are Narcissists? And this is in Psychology Today. And he basically says, and I'm just going to go down this quickly and then move on to the other part of what I started to talk about. But this is important because self-awareness is another trait of a healthy, well-adjusted human being. And narcissists do not have true self-awareness. They're not able to say, well, I'm good at this, and I need to work on that. And they can't see their own flaws. Seeing your own flaws doesn't mean self-hatred. It doesn't mean beating on yourself. It means that you're aware of areas where you want to work on yourself. You're aware of areas where you need to heal. And that's okay. But narcissists are not capable of that. And according to the article in Psychology Today, narcissists are fully aware that they are narcissistic and have a reputation as such. Narcissists would rather be admired than liked. And narcissists are masters at making first impressions, leading them to do better with short-term relationships. So it's those relationships where they do really well at first, but it's based on superficial characteristics, qualities, and connections, and then it goes downhill real quick. So that's the gist of the article. You can read this article and get more the meat of why this is so and what this article is saying about narcissists and their lack of self-awareness. They are aware that they're narcissists, but they're not aware of their ability to grow and to of their own flaws because those are completely unbearable to them. And it says here, practical implications. It's well known that narcissists rarely change, mostly because they don't want to. They love their lifestyle. Researchers trying to reform narcissists have noted that the major impediment is a lack of self-awareness. They have speculated that if narcissists retreat receive true feedback, they would change. 
The Carlson and colleagues' study suggests that this is not the case. Narcissists are fully aware that they are narcissists and that they have a narcissistic reputation. Instead, the research suggests that a better intervention would be to empathize the interpersonal and intrapsychic costs of being seen as a narcissist to others. Um, so they're unlikely to change unless they think changing will benefit their achieving what they desire, such as status and power. So are you a narcissist? There are also people who will ask, am I a narcissist? And if you're asking that question and you're worried about it, chances are you're not. Because one, you have a conscience and that means you're capable of self-reflection. Two, you're worried about what kind of person you are and how you treat other people and what other people think of you. So that's also um, a, something that basically makes it difficult for you to have high narcissistic traits or be a narcissist. So the other part here that I was talking about was that it's actually been found in brain scans. Narcissism is found in brain scans and their lack of empathy is detected in brain scans. So that might be surprising, but that actually proves scientifically that people that have full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, it's actually a dysfunction in their brain. And it says that people who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder have structural abnormalities in a region of the brain that has been linked to empathy, a new study finds. And like I said, that part of the brain just does not function and there's just not as much development of it there. And so it, it goes into more detail about what parts of the brain, how they know that, the activity in the brain and how you can see it. Um, one thing it says, like I was mentioning a second ago, the researchers found that the degree to which a person was able to exhibit, exhibit empathy was tied to the volume of gray matter in the brain, both in the group of healthy individuals among those with narcissistic personality disorder. The findings suggest that regardless of personality disorders, the left interior insula plays an important role in feeling and expressing compassion. Rupke said, one of the specialists that did the study. So there are certain parts of the brain that are underdeveloped or disconnected that the person who would have empathy would have more of that and the narcissist does not. And so there are, this is based on one study, but there have been other studies that have shown this as well, um, that the brain scans of narcissists, full-blown narcissists are different than the brain scans of regular healthy folks who are capable of empathy and feeling for other people's emotions and experiences. So um, that's a very interesting article. I'll add all of the resources that I've included so far in the resources in the show notes. And so you can see all of the articles there. Now, that was the first section. That was quite a bit. What is narcissistic abuse and why does it happen? The next section, that's, that's the longest section. The next section is basic warning signs of narcissistic abuse. Basic warning signs of narcissistic abuse. So I just want to touch on this briefly, but I feel like it's important to go through some of these because this is part of the basic rundown of narcissistic abuse. And so, um, like I said, I'll go into more detail in a future episode when we're talking about dealing with the narcissist in this series on narcissistic abuse. Okay? So in order to do that... I'm going to go through some key terms that are used often in narcissistic abuse recovery circles and the language that experts and other people who are recovering from narcissistic abuse and are educating themselves and empowering themselves about this terms that they use so you'll know what they are. So let's go into understanding the terms of narcissism. Even though this is not directly the behavior of a narcissist or warning signs, knowing the terms is part of that. And so it overlaps with this topic. So bear with me and follow me here. Eleanor Greenberg, PhD, also wrote this. It's also an article from Psychology Today. I will add it to the show notes so you can read it in detail. But there are some terms that you need to know in order to educate yourself about narcissism, narcissists, and narcissistic abuse. And those include gaslighting, love bombing, hoovering, and flying monkeys. 
And we'll get into those in just a little bit. But these are terms that if you study narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how to heal yourself and protect yourself, you need to know these terms. So let's first look at the word gaslighting. Gaslighting. You might have heard that term. The term comes from a 1938 play called Gaslight. And the two latter 1940 movies remakes. So the play and the movies are set during the late 19th century when gas lights were used for indoor lighting. The basic plot concerns a husband, Gregory, who is trying to convince his new wife, Paula, that she is going insane so he can have her committed and get the power get her power of attorney. Unbeknownst to Paula, Gregory is also covertly searching their house for valuable jewels that he believes are hidden there. So he's a master manipulator, and he heartlessly does whatever he can to make Paula doubt herself. He searches the attic, causing the gas lights in the rest of the house to dim. When Paula comments on the dimming lights, Gregory denies that it is happening and tells her that she is imagining things. Um... And it just goes on and on. But basically, that's where the term gaslighting comes from, from that movie. And basically, what it means is that a narcissist will play mind games. Sometimes they know they're doing it. Sometimes they don't. And by the way, you don't have to be a narcissist to gaslight somebody. But it's where you manipulate somebody to make them doubt their own reality, where you deny truths or where you um, lie to somebody in ways that plays mind games with them. And over time, it wears them down and it makes them doubt their own reality. It makes them doubt what they've seen and heard. And it makes them doubt their own sanity in some cases. So NPD meaning here, it says narcissistic gaslighting occurs when people with narcissistic personality disorder refuse to admit they are wrong or have done something bad to their mate or to anybody. Even when they are caught in the act, they will often try to convince the other person that he or she is paranoid and is imagining the whole thing. And then it gives an example. Um, the next term is called flying monkeys. Flying monkeys, you, you probably remember them from The Wizard of Oz. And if you're like me, they scared the heck out of you when you were a kid. I was scared of those things. But it comes from the, the children's book, The Wizard of Oz, by Frank Baum. And was very popular in the 1939 movie that we've probably all seen. The movie, well, you don't need to know all about that. But um, you know, if you know, I'm going to assume you know the plot of The Wizard of Oz. But the Wicked Witch of the West blames Dorothy for her sister's death and seeks revenge. And she's got these scary troop of flying monkeys who do her bidding. She sends them after Dorothy. And so this term came into being because flying monkeys are the slang term for any group of people that the narcissist enlists as allies to persecute someone that the narcissist hates. To gain their support, the narcissist makes up lies that portray the other person as evil and the narcissist as the real victim. It sounds sadistic, and I wouldn't have believed that there are people capable of that until I experienced it myself. It is true. There are people like this, and there are people that demented. And a lot, some flying monkeys know what kind of person the narcissist is and still are loyal to them and hurt other people on their behalf. But most of the time, the narcissist has manipulated and hook, line, and sinker um, completely deceived other people. And those people really think that they're trying to do something for somebody else's good when it's actually the narcissist who's the one with the problem. It's very sad. And this dynamic happens a lot in families, especially. And there's an example here. You can look at that if you want. Um, number three, going gray rock. This is where protecting yourself is important. I've had to do this with some people in my life. And gray rock is, it says it appears, um, the term gray rock appears to have been the first first used by a blogger, Skylar, in her article, The Gray Rock Method of Dealing with Psychopaths. Unfortunately, Skylar misuses the term psychopath to describe anyone that she sees as dramatic, unpleasant, attention-seeking, and malevolent. She includes narcissists in this group. However, the term stuck, and basically, if you're involved with a narcissist who you cannot avoid, or you choose to have them in your life to some degree, many people advise going gray rock. Like I said, I've had to do this. And there are different degrees of gray rocking as well. But it means that you... 
that your manner of, during your interactions with the narcissist, um, you keep them boring, unemotional, and neutral as you can manage. Essentially, you become an uninteresting as a gray rock, as uninteresting as a gray rock. So in that case, it might be talking about the weather. Hello, how are you? Talking about mundane things. You don't share anything personal with them. You're polite, but you're cool. You um, stay uh, emotionally distanced. You don't say anything more than you should or you have to. And like I said, there's a spectrum. There are people in my life that I can negotiate with, I can talk to, but they have been abusive. They have denied that abuse and they have never acknowledged it. And yet they can be kind in some ways and you can negotiate and reason with them in some ways. And so these people, I just know not to talk about certain topics. I know not to try to get their validation on things that they've done wrong because I know I'll never get it. And I also know that there are certain things where if we talk about it, we'll automatically get in an argument. So that is what I would call light gray rocking. That's my term. And then there are other people in my life that are manipulative, cruel, vicious, dominating, controlling, and completely deceptive. Those people, I try try to avoid more than the other people, but in that case, I gray rock a lot more. Yes, no, how are you? Talk about the weather. Nothing personal at all. Keep the conversation short. Keep the visits shorter, and you don't go off the subject at all. Okay, it's not just avoiding certain topics. It's you don't talk about these topics. That's what I would call more extreme gray rocking. So, this article doesn't talk about that, but I would argue that it depends on the level, on the spectrum the people are. If they are high-functioning and reasonable, you can gray rock just a few things. And if they are um, on the extreme end of NPD and narcissism and or psychopathy, you would have to be very, very careful around people like that. And in some cases, some people are so um, unsafe I would argue you can't be around them at all or communicate with them at all. Okay, so number four, another term is called love bombing, love bombing. And this happens especially with friendships and romantic relationships. But according to Wikipedia, it says the term love bombing was coined by members of Soon Myung Moon's Unification Church in the United States in the 1970s. New members of the group were showered with displays of warmth and attention. The church members say that love bombing was intended to be an expression of genuine friendship and concern. Critics of the practice saw it as a form of psychological manipulation used by cults in order to solidify the new members' devotion to the group. Now, this happens in romantic relationships. If somebody comes on really fast, really hard, the relationship moves really quickly, it feels really good, there's a lot of passion, there's a deep connection right at the beginning, and it just there's just no gradualness to it, that's a red flag. That's love bombing. And if you're in any kind of relationship like that, you need to be very, very careful. Um, it, does it always turn out bad? No, but... A good bit of the time, that's love bombing from a narcissist. They're trying to get you in hook, line, and sinker so that once they have you hooked, it's harder for you to get out. So the NPD meaning it says, the term love bombing is now used to describe narcissists over the top courtship tactics when they are chasing someone that they are trying to seduce or make fall in love with them. It is wildly romantic behavior that includes constant praise, promises of undying love, thoughtful little gifts, late night texts, and anything and everything that the narcissist thinks will secure the love of the person he or she has chosen. If they say all the right things and do all the right things and it happens fast, that is a red flag. I know that everybody wants this in a relationship, but it's actually better if it's not like that because you're more likely to end up with a healthy relationship with a good foundation if it happens gradually. But it says the intense positive attention is often accompanied by pressure for quick commitment. Red flag. If you see that danger, danger, Will Robinson, back the heck up, back up, back up, back up, back up. If the person is not a narcissist, they will be fine with slowing down and cooling down the relationship. If they are, they're going to try to push faster and harder or they're going to get mad at you. And that is another red flag. Then that means you need to get out, get away. It says, unfortunately, once the narcissist actually secures the person's love, the love bombing generally stops and is eventually replaced by devaluation or indifference, usually emotional abuse. 
So be careful in those situations where you first meet somebody and they are flattering the heck out of you because that is a red flag. Be careful. Hoovering. Hoovering is another one. A hoover is, as we all know, if you picture your grandmother in the 1950s or your mother in the 1950s vacuuming a carpet, she probably had a hoover. But the term hoovering is derived from the name of the Hoover vacuum cleaner. In Ireland and in the UK, to hoover became synonymous with using a vacuum cleaner to suck up dirt. So in the NPD meaning, the term hoovering has now been extended to refer to a narcissist's attempts to suck a discarded mate back into a relationship by saying and doing things that the ex would find irresistible. So let me elaborate on that a little bit. If you've been in a relationship where somebody is completely manipulating you, you have this cycle where everything's great and then it goes to hell, everything's great and then it goes to hell, everything's great and then it goes to hell, and you're completely confused and it's completely messing with your mind and your emotions are all over the place, you're probably with somebody with high narcissistic traits at least. And if they keep trying to say, I'm sorry, and they bring you back in and then they do the same thing again and then it happens again and again and again, that's hoovering. When you get that another red flag, back the heck off, get the heck out, if it happens multiple times. Anybody can make a mistake. Anybody can say, I'm sorry. Anybody can make a change. But if that change doesn't happen and they keep doing the same thing again and again, and then they keep trying to make the same promises over and over and over again, the same empty promises, get the heck out. Get the heck out. That is an empty promise, and they will not change. If they've done this to you four or five times, they're not going to change. And that's a harsh reality, but it's true. Get out. They're not going to change. Number six, narcissistic supply. Narcissistic supply. It says, according to wikipedia.org, the term narcissistic supply is a concept that was introduced in 1938 by psychoanalyst Otto Finichel, Finichel, to describe the various ways that we use other people to prop our self-esteem. For narcissists, it says, the term narcissistic supply or supplies, for short, describes anything and anyone that narcissists use to regulate their self-esteem. The purpose of narcissistic supply is to enhance the narcissist's sense of being special. Mind you, it's a false sense. And they will run over people. They will suck people dry. They will hurt people. They will destroy people. They will manipulate people. They will do whatever it takes as long as they can get that supply and feel better. The even more sadistic ones will actually play mind games with you and torture you mentally, maybe even physically, and they actually get off on that. And that's also a form of narcissistic supply. But um, you might have also heard the term emotional vampire. That fits here perfectly. Um, narcissistic supply, a narcissist, when they're getting their supply, they suck you dry. They don't care what they do to you. They hurt you and they get what they need. And it's a quick fix. It's like a drug to them. And they use you as their source. I don't mean they go to you and talk to you because they need a friend. I mean, they suck you dry. They use you. So number seven, narcissistic word salad. Narcissistic word salad. I love this term, the term word salad. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with somebody that descended into an argument or you might have been coming to somebody you're in a relationship with, whether it's personal, professional, or friendship, and you needed to address something that they were doing that was hurting you. And then somehow, by the end of the conversation, not only were they not sorry for what they did and they didn't make any corrections to their behavior, but somehow you were the one that had done something wrong. Somehow it was your fault and somehow by the end of the conversation, you were the one apologizing. If that's happened, you've been one, probably gaslighted and two, you've probably been the victim of the proverbial word salad. So what is a word salad? Okay, the term word salad refers to a form of disorganized and unintelligible speech that is character a characteristic of some forms of severe mental illness. Seemingly random phrases or words are linked together. The term word salad is often associated with a psychotic disorder called schizophrenia. Now, let me make a note here. I'm not trying to give anybody with schizophrenia or that has schizophrenic traits a hard time. I'm just 
basing it on where the terminology came from. And but the terminology now, I would say, is not like this. What I would say is that basically a person will make up lies, say nonsensical things, talk in circles, use circular logic, contradict themselves and then turn around and deny it. It's a lot of mind games and wordplay that manipulates and controls somebody. And that is a word salad, like the example I was just giving a second ago. It says the narcissistic personality disorder, meaning the term narcissistic word salad essentially is a misuse of an important psychological term. Instead of referring to an involuntary verbal sign of a severe mental illness, such as, such as schizophrenia, which is not the person's fault, and they're the victim, um, the term has been co-opted and used in a different way. It is being used as a slang term for a type of narcissistic speech that is purposefully confusing. Listeners find narcissistic word salad extremely frustrating because the narcissist is using circular reasoning, outright lies, denial, and mischaracterizations of past events to avoid being wrong and having to take responsibility for something. So they create a smoke screen around whatever you're trying to talk about, and then by the time you're done, you're so confused, you don't even know what you're talking about anymore. And in some cases, somehow, instead of them being the one that did something wrong, somehow you're the one that did something wrong, and they're the victim. So be very careful about that. That's why you've got to educate yourself about all this stuff and empower yourself. Don't let people do that to you. Number eight, the narcissistic family system, the golden child and the scapegoat. Now, we already talked about the golden child, but this term, the golden child, this is the term for the narcissistic parent's favorite child. This child is idealized as perfect and special. The parent project projects all of the positive qualities of this golden child and brags about his or her wonderful accomplishments to anyone who will listening, who will listen, including other siblings who just can't measure up and just aren't as good. It's horrible that parents do that, but it does happen. You can hear my sarcasm when I'm talking about it. The scapegoat is just the opposite. In a dynamic of families, there can be any number of scapegoats, any number of golden children. There can be an only child who's a golden child or a scapegoat. There can be two where there's one of each, but you get the idea. The scapegoat, this child is the object of all the narcissist parent's negative projections. It's just the opposite. He or she is devalued and treated as insignificant loser who is blamed for everything that goes wrong, including things that are clearly other people's fault. And I would argue that while it seems like being the golden child is a good thing and being the scapegoat is worse, in childhood it is. But the golden child, somebody who's a golden child is more likely to become a narcissist. Somebody who's a scapegoat is more likely to become a codependent, which means they can heal. Now, that's more from my observation and from being around hundreds and thousands of people who are on the healing path and who are victims of people who have been the golden child. But that's my observation. Um, a golden child can become a codependent and can heal. And some scapegoats do turn into narcissists. Um, I know a situation close to me that's like that. But, um, so it can be reversed. But it's more common that the golden child would become a narcissist and the scapegoat would become an extreme empath because they don't want other people to be treated the way they were treated. And so they have a very attuned, maybe too attuned conscience where they get enmeshed with people and too involved and they can't back off and they can't send boundaries with people and they're more likely to be susceptible to abuses because of those wonderful traits that they have. So that is the section on basic warning signs of narcissistic abuse and just things to look out for and key terms that you might use when you're encountering a narcissist and things that you might see happen in those situations. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I know that this two-part episode in this two-part series, I know this two-part episode in this series on narcissistic abuse was long. So thank you for going on this journey with me. Hopefully it educated you or maybe refreshed you a little bit on narcissism and narcissistic abuse, what it is, how it starts, who has it, the traits of it, impacts on victims and survivors, and how you can get your life back. 
That's the whole point of all of this is getting your life back and living the life that God intended for you to have. Remember, you are loved and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Not my words, God's. And also check out my YouTube channel, which is called Christian Emotional Recovery. I'm trying to put out an episode about every two weeks as I'm able and as my health permits. And also check out my Facebook group also called Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. Trauma Survivors Unite Christian Emotional Recovery. Check out ChristianEmotionalRecovery.com, which is the website where you can sign up for email list. I haven't gotten that started, but I will be getting it started as soon as I'm able. Again, thank you so much for sticking with me and listening. This was the first part in a series on narcissistic abuse. It's been wonderful talking to you today and have a great day. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Christian Emotional Recovery, hosted by Rachel Leroy. For links to this week's resources and to join the discussion, check out this episode's show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com, where you can also find links to our YouTube channel and Facebook group. Join our email list and get other episodes and resources. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend who may benefit from this message. See you next time. And remember, beloveds, God loves you and you are fearfully and wonderfully made.